1: Hey, Brad. Yes. Do you know how we fund the program Going Off Track?
2: I know exactly how we fund it. There's one source of income for us, and that is patreon.com slash goingofftrack, where our loving patrons give us money and we give them
1: bonuses. Patreon? Stop making up words. (laughs) It's a great place. We do a weekly Thursday night fireside chat. Brad takes all the embarrassing things I say in podcasts that he doesn't put into podcasts and puts it on the Patreon. Funny pictures of Brad in the 90s, usually naked or wearing a wristband. Please sign up. Brad, what's the address?
2: Patreon.com slash going (laughs) off track.
1: My brother texted me the other day, you know, cause my niece is a young burgeoning drummer and he asked Travis Barker or Taylor Hawkins with no context, just that I'll take Taylor. And, yeah. And I actually really started thinking about it. I'm like, okay, like who do I actually like and appreciate more? And quickly, you know, like my instinct is to go for Taylor because he's like my kind of drummer, you know? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Like that dude, like he hits the way I hit. He plays, you know, he's obviously into fucking seventies rock and like, you know, does this cool stuff. But you know, as far as the great scale of drummers and what they've accomplished, I, I mean, Travis Barker might be a more like vital and important kind of player, you know? Cause, um, I mean, he literally like, you know, Blink 182 does not sound like that. And they don't make the kind of <laughs> jump they make without Travis Barker. I mean, oh, it's yeah, true. Yeah. You, yeah. Their old drummer was great, but he's one of those guys, once you hit the really fast parts, you can hear that he's, you know, maybe catching up, maybe not. Like, and and then all of a sudden, Travis Barker is just like an absolute machine. I mean, people forget. Oh, he's a beast.
2: He's the a The drums
1: on those Vandals records and then the stuff in the Blink. And then all the things he did with um you know like transplants and now the crossover stuff he's doing with newer artists and a little more elect like as much as i love taylor like i do think travis barker might end up being like you know the more vital and important drummer it's 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 hard to tell
2: right but taylor's the guy that i want to jam with
1: yes yeah yeah if i just like if I'm just like stoned with a guitar, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to jam with Travis Barker no. run out of the room. I'd be so annoyed. Yeah. No, I'd have Taylor's, to be on like, yeah.
2: Taylor's going to make anything that I do sound really good.
1: Right. Like, without a doubt.
2: And Travis, yeah. I can't keep up with him. I, I don't know where to start. So.
1: Yeah. We've talked about this before. I do the types of drugs that put me into a Taylor Hawkins world. <laughs> if I did different drugs, maybe Travis. I I'd, I'd need to be a little more up. I've never been into the cocaine. You know, <laughs> the kids still do cocaine, or do they have different ways to get themselves all worked up? Are they just uh, all bumping Adderall and shit these no, days?
2: They're doing the coke. They're still doing it's cheap the coke? now. Yeah, it's cheap now. How do you know? Well, it was like whatever <laughs> ten years ago when I was still DJing.
1: Oh, I wasn't. I didn't, got didn't use it. Evening, huh? I didn't
2: use it, but uh, it seemed like every other fucking guy who was too old to be using it was so
1: yeah yeah did you ever have a coke nail <laughs>
2: no <laughs> i never really <laughs> i didn't i mean i've done a lot of drugs and coke was not really you know i think i was one of those guys it was up enough already that like yeah, yeah i didn't yeah. need coke
1: yeah i was the same i was like yeah, i was always like yeah i'm i am fine I'm f- i don't need to be worked up anymore and then by the time, like, I was actually even someone interested, I was like, yeah, I'm too old to start doing Coke. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if you're past, like, 27 and you do Coke for the first time, that's an issue there. That's a yeah. whole other yeah. set of problems. Yeah. yes, yes. Some weird early midlife crisis yes. or something, yeah, like, you don't want that. I think a cherry red convertible's in your future if you take that on. Um but anyway, speaking of midlife crisis. <laughs> and drummers. <laughs> yeah, and drummers. <laughs> I, I mean, great drummers. Like, listen, Scotty is a very intimidating guy to be your drum tech because he's like better than you. Oh, really? He's one of those people where you like yeah. look over and you're like, oh, yeah, like you you could do all this. You know, you could do right. everything I'm doing. You're fine. So the greatest story i have about scotty as a you know obviously we spent a lot of years on the road together good friends i love him a lot um but something even uh, took scotty up a notch for me which was i think it was the first tour that he was being a drum tech for us i don't even remember it took me years to accept the fact that i like needed a drum tech i uh I denied it as long as I could. Like people were like, you should probably get one. I'm like, "No," <laughs> and then it got kind of strange after a while because I had this like ritual before the show where I had to go out, retighten my cymbal stands, give my snare a little once over, like just hit everything at least once, make sure it's cool before I jump up there. And it started to get kind of weird because i jump up there and be big like, yeah it's yeah. like, dude? you're not and supposed to like, do oh, that yeah, just just fucking around in my shit for like 30 <laughs> seconds and then I'm going to walk off again and and it kind of got weird and then we started to kind of have like you know daytime offers for press and shit where like I actually literally just couldn't be there anymore so that's when I was like you know I had met Scotty through touring with Alkaline Trio and I knew he wasn't uh, touring with them at the time. And we, you know, we asked him to come out. And like literally from the first day, I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. Because <laughs> he was like so spot on. I mean, the heads were perfect after a couple days, like just tuned exactly. The, like I've never just been able to like walk up behind a kit and just be like, all right, good to go. Like I don't even have to check. Everything's perfect and I know it's going to be. And One night we're playing and, uh, I look, you know, I, I hear something in the middle of the song and I'm like, Oh, that sounds funky. And I looked down and the snares on the bottom of my snare drum had popped off. So, you know, I didn't break a head, but I was basically like hitting a Tom for my snare. It sounded crazy, you know? Um, and I'm like, Oh, that's not good. Um, you know, the song just started. So there's not much we can do. I'll get through like the three minutes of this song and then we'll swap it out. Uh, Not swap out the snares, like swap out the actual drum, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is my line of thinking, thinking there's no plan B. And then before I know it, I'm like, what the fuck? And I look down and there's Scotty under my legs. Like during a show, I'm talking like a big show, lots of people on my drum riser, under my legs, fucking taking a snare off. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, whoa, like, it, like, I didn't even know how he got in there. I kind of had the bail on my hi-hat foot, you know, which doesn't really matter for me. And I'm keeping the song going. And now I'm just like laughing. I'm like, wow, there's no way like he's going to pull this off. And literally before I know it, like maybe 45 seconds later, I'm still hitting it? and all of a sudden the snare is back on. Uh, Scotty's done. He did it in like 90 seconds. That's he, like, amazing to me. And swapped out the entire snare. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is an absolute legend. I'd hire him to work on my home. I'd hire him to work at my deli. You know, like, it doesn't matter. Like, this guy knows how to work and just knows how to get it done, you know? That was an an incredible piece of drum teching that night. I'm still impressed, as you can see.
2: Yeah, I'm impressed. It's like changing your oil while you're driving down the
1: road, man. (coughs) And it's the absolute opposite of our co-host, Ian Perkins, who was a very good tech in his own way, but very, very messy. <laughs> very messy. He had these work cases that were just like filled with... It was like if you took a junk drawer and just put it into a work box. Right. But he somehow knew where everything was uh, and kind of the, uh, the exact opposite of the way Scotty is. But I thought it was interesting... Um, Getting into, you know, the different styles of how people tour and how that kind of reflects their personality. You know, I've seen that over and over again when I tour. There's just kind of, it's almost like if you know somebody well enough, you kind of know exactly how they're going to tour before you even get out there, you know? Nice. Yeah. What was your vibe?
2: Uh, I used to explode on a hotel room, pretty much. Like, I just, I just spread out, like immediately and rapidly okay um but somehow like i had like my shit like in such a way like i used to you know i I always had the right bag and like i had like one of those bathroom toiletry kits so that i could i could fold it up just as fast like Uh i could come and go very quickly but i definitely like i would look around and kind of laugh because i was like man i really took over this room like instantly
1: (laughs) just spread out yeah But anyway, Scotty just, you know, I wanted to speak to him because he's got one of those really cool pass-through music. Sweep the Leg Johnny was a great band. Um, He was, you know, in Chicago working at the Fireside Bowl and, you know, while the trio came up and all this, like, great music in Chicago in the 90s and then toured with all these great bands, toured with me. And now, you know, like, accepted, you know, the stuff with stadium production where U2 shows up and says this really, really like broad understanding of touring and music and people. And and he's really just one of the sweetest guys I know. So I wanted to have him on. And uh, thanks to the I man, Ian John John Perkins <laughs> for always being just, I don't know, pretty much the best person I know. Uh, and I think, I think after this, Ian might need his own episode, huh? It sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. I think Ian's going to need his own episode. Please chime in and tell us if you'd like Ian Perkins to have his own episode. I got some questions for that guy. So, yeah, I thought this was a blast. And thanks to Scotty and Ian for getting into it with us. All right. Let's check let's it out. Listen. It's going on <laughs> Welcome, Scotty. Thank you so much for coming on. Ian, thank you so much for being the co-host with the Co-Most. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. Mr. Majestic. I hope someone gets that. It's from the beginning of a Gangstar record. I even texted it to Ian, hoping so. (laughs) I
3: thought that was, I thought it was Killers.
1: (laughs) Different Majestic. (laughs) Was it
3: Mr. No, that's That's Mr.
4: Brightside. Oh, (laughs) yeah.
3: Big (laughs) hit, big hit. It's a big hit.
1: I heard that's a good, good song um Scotty <laughs> yes. how
4: are you I'm good I'm good um, uh, waiting for this uh you know waiting for the world to go back to some kind of normal yeah that's
1: right so so walk me through uh what life's been like for you a little bit the last the last year how you been filling up your days and uh what are you
4: generally been up to well we bought a house um five years ago now almost maybe five years in September and it was a new house. So, uh, you know, it was, it was nice and and clean and easy to move into when things were real crazy. Um, but you know, I, I'm usually pretty busy and I haven't had a lot of time to do stuff. So this year I did, uh, that's last summer. I put in two patios in the backyard. (laughs) Um, I, I, Painted and insulated and paneled the garage. Nice. Uh, I painted the downstairs of the house. Uh, I painted my parents' house. <laughs> um, I've just been like anything I can do to like keep the TV off. Yeah, right. You know, because I won't let I won't let the TV go on until like after dinner. Oh, so so that. we just uh, and and Beck's been working. So you know, I take care of the uh, the, the shopping once a week and cleaning the house and. Doing more cooking and yeah, it's been,
1: you know. I love the TV not going on until dinner. That is a, that is an hour move.
4: <laughs> You're missing yeah, out dude. on all
3: this daytime TV, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, you can't be awake for much of it, right? Let me tell you about, I, I, I get up about one-ish, 12 <laughs> if it's early. Have there's some all goldfish. This stuff, there's all <laughs> this stuff going on during the day on TV that you don't even know about.
1: Like what are we talking? Like like supermarket sweep still on that kind of
3: thing? <laughs> no, there's just a lot of people sitting around desks talking about stuff that went on in the morning that you got to catch up with. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on. You can't be out there building patios and <laughs> painting houses until you know what's going on. It's pretty much always a lawn order on. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that you got to catch up with from the morning that you've
1: missed out on. <laughs> Scotty, are you the type like like me, where like if you even ingest the news in the morning, it just like kicks off like your day in the total wrong direction?
4: No, I I kind of have to ingest news in the morning. Oh, I've, really? uh, Okay. Yeah, I've got that um, Apple News app, so I kind of get up in the morning, and and I usually get up a little bit earlier than, than Beck, and uh, you know I let let the dog out and give him his breakfast, and then. I usually uh, kind of read the, the news in the morning, like a like it was a newspaper.
1: Hmm. All right. Yeah, so you need, I, I need you it. Need, you need yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Now, does it actually make you feel better about things to have this no, knowledge? No, absolutely not. Not even. <laughs> <honest>. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So, Scotty, I'm I'm watching some uh, some sweep the leg videos, and I noticed that you were a. Uh, I didn't realize you were a wristband wear. There's wristbands? I probably did have
4: some wristbands. (laughs)
1: Because Brad was a longtime wristband wearer in the 90s. Wouldn't play music without (laughs) him. He had, like, special ones, and they're now sitting in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Where did you find (laughs) these videos? You are on uh, something called YouTube. Uh, It's a website, and uh, they post videos of different things. Now, they had a cool video from, I think, like, six when there was that that little run of shows uh, or maybe even just one show um, that sweet played did you you played that show I couldn't tell the guitar player was doing some crazy antics where the drummer was hidden
4: 2006 we were done by then
1: yeah hmm. I wonder what that was yeah. but anyway
4: uh, tribute I, band <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I wanted to get back Scotty like you know you have a long rich history that uh <laughs> obviously the, the some of the listeners of this program don't know about and i i mean even i'm curious because like you know we toured together so long and we known each other a long time but you know you sort of sometimes miss years and miss elements of people's lives when you just come in too late you know um yeah, for sure so I kind of forget like you know wh- what was what was the background what was the the anna household like what was the uh, situation that kind of to to led you, you know, going down the path of you know drums and music. Like, what was going on when you were a kid there?
4: When I was a kid, so mom put us in uh, piano lessons. Uh, I was seven when I started piano lessons. I guess okay. I did that for a couple of years, and I didn't. You know, I should have done it more <laughs> right. and tried to enjoy it, but I didn't. And then uh, it. In fourth grade, so nine years old, the uh, the orchestra comes to the class and shows some instruments. And I went home and I told my mom I wanted to play the cello.
1: Okay. Cello. Well, the cello is very
4: expensive. Yes. <laughs> and yes. the cello is I'm uh, probably pretty excruciating to, uh, to parents' ears oh, yeah. with beginner playing. <laughs> so uh, they said, why don't you wait for a year and see what band has to offer? Okay. So I waited for a year and then uh, – yeah, I told him I wanted to play the drums, so I got a little oh. a practice pad and a yeah. uh, my how, my how
1: close to being a cellist you were
4: <laughs> so close to being a <laughs> cellist. Um, and uh, my principal gave me uh, his snare drum from when he was growing up. Oh, really? Yeah, that's awesome, Mr. Cool. It was a it was like a stop old... it.
1: The guy who when, gave you your first drum was named Mr. Cool.
4: Mr. Cool. <laughs>
1: oh, that's awful. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't be great? I was like, oh man, this story, straight from Mr. This cool story already. Like, goodness, <laughs>
3: you can call me Mr. Cool.
1: <laughs> so he gave you a snare, and then where were you? Did you do like a lot of like uh, marching band or yeah, I did. like that? I did
4: all that shit. I did um, concert band, you know. Through, through junior high and, and okay. high school. And then in high school, uh, you know, we wanted, to, we wanted to play in the jazz band if you're a big, you know, nerd like right, I was. Right, And yeah. in order to do that, you had to do the pep band and you had to do the marching band, and then I was in the <laughs> orchestra. Okay. Yeah, the whole thing.
1: So you were full on. So you wore those... Uh you know those like military style like marching uniforms that those kids Dude, wear
4: so ours were we had the drummers at different ones ours were really bad so <laughs> <laughs> the school colors were were like red white and blue obviously like oh, most cool. high schools i think yeah. and uh so Ian, the just
1: just so you know those are the <laughs> um the colors of the us flag
4: yeah not just the i have
1: uh, never seen those colors before <laughs>
4: But yeah, we had um, a nice kind of Australian-style cowboy hat with, you know, flipped up on one no, side.
1: No, really? It
4: was black, hard, like, it was, like, hard plastic, but then, like, kind of covered in velvet.
1: Oh, goodness.
4: And then this puffy sh- puffy shirt. <laughs> like, it was horrible. And then you could just wear black jeans, which, you know. Who signed off
3: on that. this? Mr. Cool did not sign <laughs> off on <laughs> that. Mr. Cool did <laughs> <laughs>
1: up. Ensuring the- you could only date. People in the band with you. Oh,
4: there's <laughs> none of that going on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's awesome. So when when you were in like uh, high school, when did you know um, kind of like the alternative culture? You know, catch your attention. When did you start getting into alternative music and and interest in like playing drums and bands and stuff?
4: Yeah, that would have been like halfway through because I went in to high school and through junior high like full on you know, Motley Crue, Duff Leppard, ACDC, yeah. which I still love all that stuff, sure. obviously. All but, all I mean, Van Halen was like my my thing. But um, yeah, it was probably 16 or so when you started getting more into, you know, skateboarding and, you know, more uh I didn't get real into punk rock right away. I was more into the the new wave scene, like a lot of New Order and and Depeche Mode and all that. Right, and stuff, right, and then the college rock REM.
1: And what what led you, uh, you know, down that road? Did you have like influences in the house, or just like friends from school?
4: Like, yeah, just friends from school, really.
1: And um, when did you guys? When did you form your first band? When, when did that start?
4: I was in my first year at college. My first, in I only went to college for about a year and a half. And that and, was in uh, Chicago. No, I was in um, Central Illinois okay yeah and uh there was a band on there that the drummer had quit or something like that so i started playing with them and played with them for about a year and we just did like you know stuff around the midwest and stuff on campus and we had a we had a van so uh we got out a little bit but not much farther than like iowa and ohio what was that band <laughs> called it was called Catherine's horse <laughs> that's a pretty good
1: name <laughs> That's so perfectly so there's Midwest, like, early nineties.
4: So awesome. So there's this like, yeah, the 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 story was that uh, Catherine the Great, you know, no man could satisfy her, so oh. yeah.
1: Interesting.
2: <laughs> oh that's right, she was a horsefucker.
4: Wait.
2: <laughs> Whoa.
1: Yeah, whoa, yeah, whoa. 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 <laughs>
2: Listen. It's he, not it's history, dude. It's not me, it's history. Wait, <laughs> wait, wait, day. wait,
1: Let's go back here. Which Catherine <laughs> yeah. are we talking about? Catherine the Great. Oh. She this is this is noted? <laughs> she had sex with animals?
4: No, I this is this oh. is what I was told when I joined the band when I asked why is a band called characters. <laughs> I was
1: like, shit, I should have paid more attention. <laughs> History <That's>, was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's very interesting. That's awesome. So what uh so you did that little stint in college and what, what um was your impetus for like getting down to Chicago?
4: Uh I I decided to go to Columbia. Uh, and took some classes there for a semester, I guess. Okay. And, um, and, uh, yeah, so that, that left that band and then just, you know, we started, started bands with friends that I grew up with and, and friends from like the Chicago area.
1: Now, like what, what kind of kid were you? Were you, um, you know, pretty mellow, got along with everyone, or at the same time you started getting into this music where you really like, kind of defining your individualism and, and trying to, you know, see yourself out of that town and stuff a little?
4: Uh, I definitely was more of a get along with everybody type kid. Yeah. Yeah. And you still, still am mate. Yeah, 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 you know, <laughs> doesn't really, it doesn't really matter what you're into as long as you're not a dick. You right. Know. <laughs> as long as no one's making fun of New Order, you were fine. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> What were you studying at university? This and that. I literally just bounced from I, I started with like some just general education courses and then I took some like uh, like education classes, like to become a teacher. Both my folks were teachers, and I kinda of thought that was the only thing I could do. Yeah. What did they and, say
3: though when you drop when you like I want to be in <laughs> Catherine's horse
4: <laughs> and not I be actually, a teacher. <laughs> I actually called my dad and, and, uh, and told him that I, was, I didn't want to stay in school anymore. And I called him in time for him to still get all, to get all his money back because I was fortunate enough to have parents that were willing to pay for my college. So oh, I just great. saved him a bunch of money, I guess.
1: So like, listen, dad, no more education. But I got out before the next bill. Yeah. You can buy a boat. <laughs> cool. Get get out of there. Yeah, yeah. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> One last thing. Go deliver something on a bike, pal. <laughs> <laughs> so did when man. you when you made it down to Chicago, what was like the you know, how did you start making your way and, and getting into the scene there?
4: Um what year was cool. that too, by the way? Uh so that would have been like ninety two? Okay. Yeah, somewhere around ninety-two, ninety-three. Um, so uh, Brian Peterson, who booked the Fireside Bowl, right? Um, that it wasn't started yet, but he and I, he and I grew up together. Um, oh, great. He was a couple years older than me, but we we've known each other since uh, I think I was probably like nine. He was eleven.
1: And just for the people uh, listening, can you tell them where you grew up?
4: I grew up in Elgin, Illinois, which is about. 35 miles outside of downtown Chicago.
1: It's close to where Wayne Campbell's from, right?
4: Uh, is
1: it close no to Aurora? Idea. It is close to Aurora. Yeah, okay. I thought Wayne and Garth were your names. Yeah, my
4: mom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom grew up in Aurora, actually.
1: <laughs> okay, cool. So you uh, so you reconnected with Brian Peterson down in Chicago?
4: Yeah, and uh, I was just kind of working odd jobs and playing and just random you know, little bands and uh when he started doing the fireside, uh I was bartending at a couple places. Um and so I started kind of helping out helping out there with you know just pouring drinks and yeah drinking at the other half.
1: <laughs> where, where was your head at in those days? Like like, you know, you were sort of moving away from school, just playing in bands, yeah. working at bars. Like what was what was the plan, buried, or, or was was it the no plan? It, there plan? was
4: zero. There was zero plan. It was yeah, buried. It was buried in that bottle. We we had a good time, right. <laughs> all the time. Yeah, um, yeah, and you know we were starting to, uh, you know, the idea was to get a band so you go out and tour. Yeah, like right. tour more sure. than just you know Midwest.
1: And uh, I mean, what was going on in like Chicago in that in those years was. Uh... Starting to kick up a lot of a lot of interesting bands. Like, what was what was the scene like in the in the early nineties? Pretty, pretty it was thriving. hopping,
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. Mid nineties, especially. But right. I mean, at Fireside, we were we were having shows, you know, sometimes six nights a week. Yeah, that's crazy. Was and it all and Brian? Be... Brian
1: was booking all of those, or were there a number of people? No,
4: there, there was another guy named Dave eves at the beginning, uh-huh. um, and uh, the two of them kind of tag teamed it, and then. Uh, Dave moved on and then, you know, a couple other people came in and Brian was always, you know, there, but uh, a couple other people, he always had us <clears throat> helping out a little bit.
1: So did you, did you kind of get connected in the scene and have these jobs like before you got in Sweep the Leg Johnny? Like, was that sort of your connection to those guys in that band?
4: Yeah, I actually, Steve and I, who played uh Saxon sang and sweep, he and I went to summer camp together. When oh, we're no kids. shit. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, and they went to Notre Dame. So we had always stayed in touch. And uh, I used to go to Notre Dame just to kind of you know visit for the weekend. And um, they were in a couple different bands then. And then when they moved to Chicago uh, after they graduated, because they actually graduated from college, um, the bass player and drummer left and there was a guy named Matt Alisea and I, and Matt was like this, there's a band from back in this time called Tommy Rod. That was just hmm. like, if, if you can find any Tommy Rod stuff, it's just amazing. Huh. Uh, the first drummer of Alkaline Trio was actually the drummer of Tommy Rod. But oh,
1: okay.
4: um, so Matt and I were in a band um, and that band wasn't really doing much. And so we joined Sweep.
1: And what was like, you know, Sweep, now especially in retrospect i know like during that time there was some bands around that were kind of kicking around some of these ideas a little you know maybe like your cap and jazz is or something like that but you know what what was the actual like mentality going into sweep and starting that band because the the music is just so unique and it still sits in a very unique place that i wonder like Really, like, what were you guys listening to, and and what was the, you know, the intention of of, yeah. of it when you started?
4: I think I think the funny thing was that we all really listened to different things. We had there was definitely like an overlap, you know. But but I liked a little bit heavier and faster stuff, and you know, everybody kind of had their own their own thing, and then to incorporate the, the saxophone into it, everything, yeah. you know, where she played kind of more like a guitar. Right. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. It was just, and then when we wrote songs, we all, we all wrote together um, in the, in the space. And uh, sometimes you just couldn't end songs. So they just turned out to be 13 minutes long. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there was like no rules to it. You didn't have any interest in, in keeping it no. like, like pop oriented at all, right? T- Definitely not. No.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there were other bands. There were other bands there that just, it wasn't like you were just the only ones doing it. There mm-hmm. were other bands like growing up in England. I always looked over and like, saw like Chicago was this or LA was that DC was this. Right. But was Chicago, was Chicago, there were other bands doing that, that you just fit in with. Yeah. There's like the whole kind of math rock experimental, you know, who were the like, bands, like, yeah. who were the
4: bands, who were the Chicago bands? Tell us. I mean, the biggest one that people would probably know of would be shellac. Ah, oh, you know, right. Steve, Steve Abini's band. Yeah. Um, but like you mentioned, uh, Benny the Captain jazz, there's a band called psychic Kato. Um, uh, you know, there's just, there's a handful of them, but we, we didn't really play with bands. that sounded like us. I was like, you'd play with like the, the lineups would just be very, uh, diverse. So right. we, used play, we used to play with Alkaline Trio like all the time. It wasn't a second thought because we, we were just buds. So it's just, it didn't matter. What, like everybody was kind of into everything and, and very um, accepting. Right. Yeah. Fireside always had just had to, even though it was crazy and, and disgusting at times, it, yeah. was, uh, it just had a really good like I hate to use the word vibe. I really do. But it did. It had a use
1: good vibe it. to use it. it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can I can even confer. I have a little side story about Fireside. Like, you know, yeah, um, you've been there, right? Only once, and in a very okay. strange context. I was touring with my band The Low End Theory in mm-hmm. probably ninety eight or something. And it was the old bass player from Poison the Well had booked our tour. We right. were at the fireside bowl. And we took a very long, I forget where we were coming from, but it was many, you know, like a 10 hour drive or something to the fireside. We show up, of course, we're stoked. We're like, wow, the fireside bowl. This is great. And they go, uh, we don't know who you are. Oh no. And we're like, wait, what? (laughs) Like, look right here. You're, you're on the schedule. You're on the tour (laughs) manifest, you know? And like, they are like, yeah, we've never heard of you. And uh, so the person who had booked the tour just threw it on the uh, schedule there without actually booking a <laughs> show. Um, so, you know, our bass player calls on the payphone and jaws out this booking guy. I wouldn't even call him a booking agent. You know, he's just a dude. And cool. um, we're like, oh, fuck. Like, what happens now? We just literally pissed away. Like, you know, $200 in gas getting here. Like, I don't even know. And, you know, speaking of vibe, they're like, uh there's a show tonight. You guys can play. Like, Get the fuck out of here. And it turned out, I'm sure you know the band, Scotty. It was a band called Leonard's innards. Oh yeah. Which was like a pretty well-known Chicago punk band, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we, so it was ended up being a Leonard's innards show. They not only let us play, they gave us uh, gave us some beer, um, gave us some money off the door, you know, whole thing. Like it started as like the worst day and ended up a very, very fine day. So you I, gotta love that. Yeah, so I do really I mean, you know, there's not a lot of places you'd walk into that would do that. So the idea that there was some pretty awesome vibe at that place makes sense, you know?
4: Yeah. We actually got lucky like that with um with Jawbox in Florida one time. Oh really? And I was a huge jawbox fan. And we had called the uh we had called the promoter, it was it was a, it was in Pensacola. And we had called the promoter just to check on everything. He's like, I got good news and bad news. Good news is the show's all you know confirmed and everything. And you know, this is like two days before the show, and you're still making sure it's confirmed. Yeah, no yeah. <laughs> but, but um he's like, bad news is Jawbox is playing like two blocks away. Oh. He's like, but I'm gonna try and get you on the bill. Oh shit. So I was like, all right, you know, so um, we end up going to this kid's house like the day before the show, his parents' house. His mom makes us dinner. We're going to crash on the floor. And the phone rings in the house because it's way before cell phones. And uh, it's Kim Coletta from Jawbox. Oh, shit. Asking to speak to me. And she says, so you guys want to play on the on the show with us? And we're like, yeah, it'd be amazing. And uh, so they let us play. They gave us 100 bucks out of their pocket. Wow. And they gave us all their green room beer because they had enough in their van already.
1: Look at that! Sweet and so cool. <laughs> oh. oh man, I'm going to spin a Jawbox record extra tonight.
4: They're so good.
1: <laughs> and you know, Zach. I'm sure you know Zach Barak is the drummer. Yeah. Who I'm, I'm I'm sure we both have stolen many things from. Uh, he randomly uh, uh, started working at a bookstore in Jersey City, and I slightly recognized him, but but like didn't put it together. One night, I had a bit of a situation at the restaurant next door, and I had to rush into the bookstore and blow up their bathroom. Um, oh. oh, a
4: situation. Oh, a, sh- yeah. a situation.
1: <laughs> and, you know, I, it was one of those times I walked in. I was kind of like, I, maybe it was just my body language or something, but Zach looks at me and he kind of just gives me like the closes his eyes very softly and gives me the knock. You know, he's like, oh, I see what's happening here. Go ahead. You know? And I'm even sitting there in the bathroom, like, you know what? That dude was cool. Like, like, nice, you know, like uh he got it. He got it. Good for him. And then I put it together like a couple weeks later. I'm like, holy shit, you're the drummer from Jawbox. It also makes sense why an old touring person was empathetic towards a, exactly. uh, a situation. He's, right? you know, he's been there, I'm sure. I'm sure he's been there.
3: Oh man. We've so, all been there. We've all been there.
1: Yeah, I've been there a lot. Um <laughs> <laughs> so when you were like when you were in the middle of this Scotty, like, you know, when this was all going on in those years with because this is right, like early trio, uh what, slapstick, like early Lawrence arms, like all these great bands coming out of Chicago, this great venue that people from all over the country are getting to. I know there was like a thriving underground scene and houses and stuff. Did, you know, did you realize at the time it, it was special or only really in hindsight?
4: Yeah, I think we did. Cause the, the bands that were, the bands were moving on, you know, and getting bigger, like, you know, Jimmy world, for example, Right. You know, I remember seeing them there them there a couple of times and then you know all of a sudden you know they're they're huge and just the way that it it ran itself and and you know we were we were touring at the times so we'd see other venues around the country mm. and and it's we definitely knew it was a special spot yeah for sure That's awesome.
1: What was the band that would that play horribly. in those days that you wouldn't miss?
4: <laughs> that I wouldn't miss?
1: Yeah, like if they were playing anywhere in Chicago, you would I best.
3: thought you meant the the band. Oh, no. I got it completely wrong. <laughs> I was the opposite way. I was like, wow. Who's the
1: band, <laughs> who's the band that
3: just fucking sucks? You would never go it? fucking yes, see if your life depended. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
2: well, let's give question. free beer. Was,
4: yeah. Nope, not going. I was like, going. wow. Yeah, well,
1: you'll
4: do uh, <laughs> If it was just like... Like a show in Chicago, um, but not a Chicago band. It was definitely Rocket from the Crypt.
1: Oh, yeah, that's right.
4: Like Rocket from the Crypt in Chicago was just, it was an event.
1: <laughs> and what about Ian's question? The band you would never go see. <laughs>
4: would never, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> yeah. Donuts, uh, donuts. Uh,
1: <laughs> Here's back to the diplomatic nice guy again. There you um, go, see? Have you seen any resurgence in "Sweep the Leg Johnny" activities since Cobra Kai came out?
4: <laughs> no, um, we don't even have a social media account. <laughs> so no, but um, we are re-releasing a, an album.
1: Uh, which, so. which record are you putting out?
4: The it was the third release, Salsa Awesome! Yeah, and so be able to um, find
1: you digitally and things after this.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's the main reason we're doing it. Uh, so it'll be on iTunes and, and uh, Spotify, and and uh, we're going to re-release the vinyl.
1: That's awesome. Have you all yeah. talked about maybe doing a show or anything?
4: No, no. Um, we're kind of all over the world right now. John the bass player is in Tijuana. Oh, wow. uh, Steve is in China. Whoa. And Chris and I are here in Chicago still.
1: Uh, so I would imagine that at least <coughs> one member from every math rock band has to live in Asia eventually. Right. Is That's part of the criteria, he's been there right?
4: <laughs> yeah, he's been there for a while now.
1: So, you're working at Fireside in those years. Can you remember a night, a couple nights, a particular instance that was just like, whoa, what is going on here? Like, what's the craziest night at Fireside Bowl in those years? The wackiest thing that happened.
4: Uh, I mean, there was always dumb fights. Right. Um, but we we were very self police like people people kind of looked out for the place because it was so it was so not legit that like if the cops came there too often you know it it definitely yeah. would have would right, have ended right, except right. we did there were a couple guys that patrolled the neighborhood that were um <laughs> they were huge pegboy fans and they oh, were God. into a bunch of yeah <laughs> and they were into into a decent amount of punk rock right, and okay. so They'd come in in uniform Wow! Um, every now and then. And like we got to know them, you know, but the kids, the kids would still freak out. couple of cop, that the, cops gonna, fans. Love that. <laughs> that the cops yeah. are going to shut it down. Yeah. But there was, uh, there was some car robberies that were happening and, and vans getting broken into and, uh, and things like that and yeah. gear getting stolen. And the cops that were peg boy fans actually were the ones that uh, kind of set up a whole little operation and, caught the people doing it so Oh really?
1: what was that yeah. they like actually did like a sting?
4: Yeah, yeah, they did like they, they like got up on the roof and watched watched the street for a while until like someone Really? Yeah.
3: That wow. really happens in real life. With it like really a box happens. of
4: donuts and just a yeah. binoculars. Only in Chicago. Yeah. Wow.
1: Just, I'm just imagining two Chicago cops up a on a hot roof dogs listening to field of darkness. And just, <laughs> like, noshing out. Like, I guess they have a pizza, you know, like in my couple opinion. hot dogs. Oh, like, right. dogs, right. Cops probably eat dogs in Chicago, right?
3: Definitely. They can eat what they want. They're on the roof doing, <laughs> doing the good
1: work. Doing
4: his thing. So they <laughs> yeah. actually,
1: did they set up, like, a, a dummy van?
4: I don't recall, to be honest with you, but they did they did set up something where they caught the guys that were doing it. Wow.
1: So not a, that's pretty awesome that you had that. that neighborhood
4: was, that neighborhood was rough and tumble in those years.
1: It's not anymore. So, Is it part of the areas that got gentrified and stuff?
4: It's kind of on that. It's kind of on that border. It's, it's a bit North of like Logan square, um, you know, Wicker park. Uh, but it's, it's just kind of in its own zone.
1: Right. Right. So it's
4: not fully, it's not fully gentrified and, like Wicker Park and, well, Logan Square still got its areas, but back then it was, yeah it was, it was thick.
1: <laughs> I heard about a legendary bartender you used to work with, Hammer or Hamir? Yeah, Hamir. What was that guy's vibe?
4: He's, uh, <laughs> he was a gambling addict. Oh. Um, he was, when I started working there, he didn't work there. He was just like the neighborhood guy. Oh, okay. Like he just, but he was a raging alcoholic. Okay like raging to the point where he would come into the fireside and he would have me make him a drink, which was essentially like, so in a long Island iced tea, for example, you have vodka, gin, rum, tequila, triple sec. And then you throw in some like sweet and sour and Coke. Right. So he would essentially put like vodka, gin, rum, tequila, and Jaegermeister oh into like, you know, like a 12 ounce solo cup, Uh like, you know, no ice about 75, 80% full and then splash a Coke just the and just drink it like it was a glass of water and then go and then go in the ice room where he had a hidden bottle of Southern Comfort that he just pounded on. Okay. So then he, his doctor told me he was going to die if he kept drinking. So he'd stopped. Um, and then he started working there and he still works there.
1: No shit, really?
4: He still works there, yeah.
1: Wow, so he was just like a neighborhood dude who yeah, just got bombed there, and then everyone became friends with him, he started working there? Yeah,
4: he used to get bombed at every neighborhood on the, on the corner, for every corner neighborhood. Every
1: Did you, you ever rename bar. his drink, like, instead of a Long Island? Was it like a Gary we Indiana iced tea?
4: <laughs> no, <laughs> Gary Indiana. <laughs>
1: Something like that.
0: <laughs> oh,
4: my God. Yeah, he he's uh, the owner of Fireside. His name is Jim and his dad owned it before him. And so oh, Jim really? kind of grew up going to the neighborhood and just knew hammer from. Yeah. He was from just a neighborhood guy. When yeah. did it
1: actually convert from like a bowling alley?
4: I think shows started. It was like 94.
1: Oh, okay. So it was actually like a functioning bowling alley, like right before, right until then.
4: Yeah. I think it was a, I think it was a failing bowling alley. Right. Yeah, as your game, can you bowl? I bet you can bowl.
3: It's definitely
4: you're good. You you are good. I know it. I haven't gone in a long time. I went the last time. I went a couple times when we were living in England, and it's expensive to bowl in England. Man,
1: right?
4: Everything's expensive in England.
1: Don't they have those little pins over there? (laughs) Little pins. (laughs) It's funny bowling, isn't it? It's not real bowling.
4: No, no, they get real bowling. Oh, you have real bowling? Yeah,
1: we invented it, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, you've invented, like, all the sports that we poached, essentially. Except for lacrosse. (laughs) I think that one's ours. (laughs) (laughs) But, all right. So, speaking of which, the fact that everyone from the Midwest can bowl and probably has their own custom ball. um, I stumbled upon upon an article, okay, getting into this interview. This is uh, Business Insider Magazine, ironically. From June 18. And the title is Common Misconceptions About the Midwest. Eight things that coasties get wrong. <laughs> I'd never heard myself called a coastie before. Coastie. Yeah. Coastie. You'd never heard this either? No. Oh, I thought it was like a ham and cheese coastie, you know? like. Um, <laughs> but, so, all right. So here are the eight things, okay? Some of them are ridiculous. But this is straight from Business Insider Magazine periodical of note all right first everyone is polite let's do true or false for the common misconceptions about the midwest everyone is polite false false uh not no everyone di- not everyone but a lot but based on your experience is there a in higher Minis- percentage of politeness than say new jersey in minnesota especially Oh, they're the nicest in the Midwest? Oh, definitely. Oh, I didn't know that. That makes yeah. sense, actually. All right. Uh, no diversity. I didn't like this one. That makes no sense. We're going to skip that one because there is that. It just depends where you go, right? Um, this one was weird. It said, it's okay to make fun of them. An example being, in quotes, uh, campy <laughs> wedding cakes, bait shop gunfights, and ranch dressing <clears throat> theme gender reveal parties. Sure. I don't even I don't even understand that. What is what? Like, what are ranch you talking about? Theme gender reveal parties? I'm not Wow. I actually yeah, now that I read that back, I don't think you should use ranch dressing while doing a gender reveal. That's actually that's dirty. Yeah. Um Messy. Okay. Yeah, messy. Don't like it. Okay, everyone is a farmer. False. False. No one is cultured. False. false. I know it's a terrible article. Who wrote this? Who wrote this? Hunting and fishing are the main pastimes.
4: Uh, no, false. <laughs> but close. Depends on your on your circle.
1: Sure. All right. Corn. They definitely exist. Corn is everywhere. True. True.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the and- band or the food?
1: <laughs> Both, probably. No. I bet there's parts of Illinois that have a big like corn ICP kind of population. I'd imagine
4: a hundred percent. Yeah,
1: once you get out west there. All right. <laughs> and it's a flyover region. I'd never even heard that before. False. So let's just go ahead and say fuck this business cider magazine article. <laughs> it was just baiting us into some strange argument.
4: We've really like, the second busiest airport in the country.
1: Yeah, I didn't like this. Can't fly over. Yeah, Brad, we might cut <laughs> this. No. Uh, so, but all that being said, what are some observations on Coasties that you've had through the years? You've toured with plenty. Are we mean? Are we that much different than people from the Midwest?
4: I don't think so. I know you have a fascination with people from the Midwest.
1: I do. Yeah. Yeah. I am. But, I, yeah.
4: I don't think that. Um, I don't think you're any
1: different. Do you mean fascination by I like the movie Fargo?
4: No, I just know you
1: <laughs> <laughs> I do
4: know that. But I know that you uh that you enjoy the Midwest like uh our our maybe our, our simpleness. Um our niceties.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's simpleness, because unlike this business insider article, I am not like a bigot towards people from the Midwest. is this No, right? no, I didn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't like, like I, I've met, you know, uh, some very rich, cultured, educated, interesting, creative, like everything, everything you get anywhere else in the Midwest. I think the thing that's different is just this general difference in how you treat people, uh, a general difference in how you communicate. Like, where someone from where Ian's from or someone where I'm from, when you start to like someone, you make fun of them more. You know, like you just break Definitely. their balls, like you get inside, you got to like take them down a peg in some weird way. And yeah, I think
4: Chicago's got that same that same thing.
1: Yeah, maybe the city. but But I feel yeah. like, you know, the general person in the Midwest, it's just this like kind of less combative way to be, you know, like a little more... A little more open, a little less rushed, a little less intense. And I do find it, like, soothing to be around. And I and I love the accent. When you said roof before, I, I, <laughs> I was giddy with excitement because I love the way it sounds. <laughs> Say it again. Roof. 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 on the roof. That's great. But I am semi-obsessed. Um, but I want to talk about something I know you love. Yeah, I know you're a, a big movie fan. Especially from certain eras, I want to go ahead and let's rank the top five Chicago movies in history. Oh man! All right, so I have a bunch written out here, but these are the ones that I need on my top five. And you tell me if I'm wrong. Now I got, we, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
4: Are we? Are they based in Chicago or filmed in Chicago?
1: Uh, based. And I'm also going to include Chicago adjacent, like Home Alone, or something like that suburbs. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. I got this on my list, and you tell me what I'm missing. I got Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Mm -hmm. The Fugitive, Yep, uh, High Fidelity, Yep, Home Alone, Yep, and for me, this number five slot is somewhere between Adventures in Babysitting. Ooh, and really. untouchables,
4: yeah. Ooh. See, I'd pull high fidelity off personally. Really? Yeah.
1: Is that because the actual story itself is English? And they no, just, I just, I, just wasn't,
4: I just wasn't a fan of it. Really? Yeah. I should probably watch it again. Too whiny. I love, I love Cusack <laughs> too. I just, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I watched it at a bad time. <laughs> But uh, it was filmed right down the street from where we were living at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, it was filmed on on Milwaukee Avenue, like down the street from where Reckless Records is now. But like right on uh, uh, Milwaukee and Wood.
3: Okay. Did I take a parking or what? Tell us the real reason. There's a reason. (laughs) That's why. They stole your spot. Closing the street.
1: (laughs) All right. So um, we're taking High Fidelity off. What are we putting out?
4: Can we go? Can we go a little campy and and do Red Heat? Oh, good one! Good.
1: (laughs) And I'd like to bring up. Listen, we're still missing out of this list. I haven't brought up backdraft, running scared, Road to Perdition, the Blues Brothers,
3: yeah, and also
1: Rookie of the Year. I mean, that's like the only Cubs movie there is, you know. Uncle Buck. Uncle Buck. Oh, we even got Uncle eight Buck. men out.
4: I mean, you pretty much just go John Hughes and, and <laughs> yeah, the John Hughes. Take part. your take your pick.
2: You can't lose the Untouchables, though. You can't lose that one, dude.
4: Yeah, Untouchables is great. That's
2: a classic film.
4: Well, you could lose Home Alone. I'd, I'd swap Home Alone for for Uncle Buck.
1: So we got Fugitive, Ferris Bueller's, Uncle Buck, no Home Alone, no High Fidelity, Untouchables. And what adventure? while you were sleeping? <laughs> yeah, <while you're> sleeping. <laughs> that is a good one. It's crazy. This is a lot of movies. There's like besides for L.A. and New York, Chicago's got to take the cake for this this many films.
4: Now we got all the uh, there's all the TV shows
1: there. Now. Oh well, like Chicago Fire, Med, and yeah, Cops, PD. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my uh, mother-in-law likes those programs. Oh, does she? She I've does. never. I've never watched any. I try not to watch them. Um, well, that's good. Anything
4: we're missing here? Films? No, no, we got them so. all. Those were the ones would have been the ones I rattled, rattled off. Cool. So, the Dark Knights are great, but that's oh, not. Yeah. yeah. But that's not Chicago. Yeah, that's, but they were.
1: Were they filmed there? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. <laughs>
4: yeah,
1: it makes more sense. Yeah, I guess that's why Heinz Ward was in it.
4: It's all a lore whacker.
1: Huh. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Now you were telling me something before that was super interesting. So, you know, we're going to jump a little bit. Obviously you're not in sweep the leg Johnny anymore. And obviously you do not work the fireside bowl anymore. Uh, (laughs) And there were a a lot of years in between that you, uh, you know, hit the road, like seriously. And so what, what was that transition for you from like, playing uh and really trying to do your own bands and how did it transition to you from you know getting out on the road and and just like making your way a a different way
4: yeah so so sweep was we toured a lot um for about five years like we were on tour constantly but we weren't making any money right um we were we were going to europe uh quite often um and in the van around the States constantly, but we all had to work like three jobs when we got home so we could pay our rent. So we could go back out on the road and that was getting old. The fireside was, uh, was kind of under this umbrella of, of going away. Um, because the park was expanding that's Mm. down the street from there. So kind of started getting other jobs and, and wasn't really into it. And, wasn't touring with sweep anymore. And um, yeah, uh, the first band that I worked for after, after that period, after sweep broke up was, was trio. Right. Yeah. Cause they had been, I mean, they had been making money and, and having a crew for, for a while at that point for quite a few years. What year was that? Uh, it would have been like 2007.
1: Oh, okay. So, yeah, they were pretty established by them.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So that's when you jumped on with them, and it was just like a, hey, like Scotty's around. We know him from back in the day. Let's take him on the road. Or,
4: yeah, um, we had all kind of spent time living together. Uh, Matt was living out in California already, so um, when he came back, he had an apartment that was above mine at the time. With uh, our buddy Dave. And then my brother was living up there for a little bit. And oh, then wow. when Derek joined the band, uh, they were still practicing in Chicago because Danny still lived in Chicago mm. and uh, Derek slept on my couch for a while. And nice. so we were, we were, we were super tight. Um, and so Keith, uh, who was the drum tech before me, um, had, had moved on. And, uh, and so I kind of hit them up and, and, you know, asked if I could, if I could, Jump in.
1: What was the first run you did with them?
4: Um, it was a headline and run uh, on the West Coast. I remember uh, we started. Uh, I can't remember. We started in, like San Francisco.
1: Okay. Yeah. Was like being around trio like early on and stuff. Was it one of those? bands that when they like formed they got established and playing around that it was sort of an automatic, like, you know, something special going on here or, or did it, did it take a little while for them to, to get their footing and people to realize like, what was, what was the beginning uh, of the trio? Like
4: they, they, they got off to a pretty good start. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Cause they had uh, it was a different lineup at, at first. It was, it was obviously Matt and then, um, a different bass player and different drummer. Right. And then Danny joined uh, for the first full length and uh, Glenn was still drumming for two full lengths. Okay. And then, and then, you know, they kind of Asia man picked him up because Danny was in slapstick with my brother. Yes. Um, and so they were already on Asia man. So I think they got, they had a good jump start, and their songs. I mean, their songs are so catchy. Yeah, yeah. So hooky and they were such a they were such a fun band live when they were when they were super young too, because it was right. just it was just debauchery on stage. Yeah, know? and Skiba was like
1: <laughs> yeah, he was like eighteen when they started, right?
4: Um Or like very young. Yeah, he was young. He was definitely over twenty one. Uh when Trio started. When I met him he was he was eighteen. Okay. He was in a band called Jerkwater.
1: Was it Jerkwater?
4: Yeah. Nice. He played drums. <laughs>
1: Ian and I were talking before on text a little about how, you know, Skiba's like to us, one of the last true like rock stars, you know, like to me, like he's one of those people who walks into a room and just has this, like, you just kind of notice him. He has that like presence. He's like one of those people. Um, Did, did you pick up on that and, or did you just know him too well? And like, did you see people kind of react like really strangely around him eventually?
4: Uh, I don't think people ever acted strangely around him because he never acted strangely around other people. Yeah, that's true. I think, um, but he definitely like the charisma you're talking about is a hundred percent there. And it always was. Yeah. Yeah. Like He's even when very... you met
1: him, when he was young, you're just like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. got something, something going on there.
4: I got him his first fake ID.
1: <laughs> really? Where was that?
4: It was my buddy, Alan, who was, who was my age, so a couple years older. Yeah, um, he They just could pass for one another, so Alan just got a duplicate. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's awesome. <laughs> Good job we haven't set a sting operation up on this call. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: <laughs> got to get those peg boy guys back.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Sitting on the roof right
1: now. So this is a good time to bring up a uh, a little segment on The Friend called Mystery Friend. Who did you piss on? Who did you offend? Where you laid to the king? Did you show up at the end? Put on your thinking caps. It's your mystery friend. So I went ahead and spoke to one of your very old friends mm-hmm. and got an old story. So I'd like you to tell me a little bit about <laughs> this story, what the uh, context was, and then you have to guess which friend told me, okay?
4: Oh, you really did research.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Scotty, I love you. You know? I you love go it. all the way. Um, so I heard when you were a young, a young man, about 17 or so, you were uh, doing acid. <laughs> at a guy named Jed Babbitt's house. Right. Had a couple girls over. It was extremely awkward. Uh, And the older brothers came home and played you Smashing Pumpkins and vibed out your acid trip super good. Do you remember this?
4: Well, I wasn't the one doing acid. You didn't do acid. Oh, you were watching
1: people do acid. So
4: Jed Uh Babbitt that you're speaking of.
1: Great name, by the
4: way. He was 17. Oh, okay. His older brother and I, John. Uh, had gone to see Smashing Pumpkins.
1: Okay, okay. This story, <laughs> so we, this story is <laughs> a little different. Okay, we
4: went to see Smashing Pumpkins at Metro. Uh huh. And I mean, Ooh, maybe that's we, a cool show.
1: Wow.
4: I was going to ask if you'd seen Smashing Pumpkins back in the day. What year was that? That would have been early '90s. So yeah, we definitely saw them. Like when they when, when they were still like pushing Gish, like you could see them at Metro for seven bucks and just wait in line and. It wasn't even sold out. Wow. wow. That's crazy. Yeah, so we, we see him a lot. So I'm Atara Records, like doing an acoustic thing for uh, when they released the set, um, what's it called? That Siamese Daydream, the second album? Siamese Dream, yeah. Siamese Dream. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Is it, yeah, it? so we yeah. we went home. We, we went back to John and Jed's house, well, their mom's house, and Jed was there with with uh, a young lady.
3: Is it possible that you were on acid and you believed that you were at a Smashing Pumpkins concert <laughs> and that you had never left anything's, the house?
4: Anything's possible. Anything. <laughs> so you've never done acid? Oh no, I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> just not that that, that day
1: <laughs> particular music.
4: I was kind of the funny thing was when you asked me to do this. I was just kind of I was you know I was hesitant at first. Yeah, you know I'm not I'm not some some rock guy, um, but. I was just kind of thinking of some funny stories that have happened along the the years. And some there's too many that <laughs> happened around acid. <laughs> oh,
1: man, I didn't know this about you, Scotty. I didn't know you had an acid run. It, it wasn't like a run. It
4: was just, it was just, you know, it popped up every now and then.
1: I mean, more than a few times I'd consider it a run. Did you ever, uh, did you ever like See, I've still yet to try it, Scotty. Like after all these years, I was scared away from it early on for, I think, very valid reasons. But now I'm like starting to get to that point where I'm like, you know what? Like, let's open these doors. I'm ready. You know, like I want to I want to see what's back here. I mean, Uh, they're
4: doing all the tests on it now that like, you know, it's supposed to help you with all kinds of things.
1: Yeah. Did you ever (sighs) find that it like took you somewhere you actually like really needed to go?
4: No. no. <laughs> we just it just got us it just got us in trouble. And uh I mean I can't imagine doing it. It's been decades yeah. at this point since I've uh, done that, but I can't even imagine doing it now. Have you
1: ever been arrested? Uh no. Oh. All that time. I've never
4: been arrested. I've uh, been handcuffed okay. uh by the police. But I've never been uh, I've never been arrested.
1: I like that you had to specify by the police. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs>
4: I've been handcuffed. Yeah. I know where your mind is wandering.
1: <laughs> I've been handcuffed by a number of people.
4: Police <laughs> being one of them. Uh, listen, Sky <laughs> went on duty.
1: You have a you've always had a terrific body. I've always wondered <laughs> with that body, with that hair, oh, what was man. going on at night when I fell asleep. I always thought you could have been getting into some sexual Fight Club type of stuff. Just saying.
3: What's your secret, Scotty? Because you yeah. are. If I think of like, like all older acid. people stop doing acid or do it. <laughs> just do loads. Do loads of acid, and I could look like you. I would mm-hmm. be drinking bottles of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. You got to tell us, Scotty. Like you're, you look great. You've always looked great. What's the trick? What's the physical trick? What are you doing? It's just mom and dad. I got lucky. <laughs> Pure genetics. Pure genetics.
3: So I, there's nothing we can do at all to yeah. for me and Benny, Ian who are like I, big yeah. boys. 650 pounds
1: of slovenly mess over there.
3: <laughs> oh, my gosh. We've got, got no
1: chance. <laughs> and Ian, it was genetics the whole time. You're people both were,
3: beautiful uh, humans.
1: People are telling us it was like nutrition. I know. So me and you were feeling out. guilty about our snack bags and shit. And it was just hard. I know. No, you got a snack. Just Should have time. had
3: different parents. <laughs> Could have been beautiful like Scotty.
1: <laughs> Speaking of tours and snack bags, I, I guess people don't know what that is. Ian Perkins famously at any gas station or rest area, U.S., Europe, he's usually feeling gregarious. And we'll come back into the van with something he calls a snack bag. It's filled with, like, I don't even know where you get the money from 20 to 30 euros or dollars worth of treats. And, and then
3: I was you, selling acid to Scotty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you can't help it. Like, you know, Scotty, how many times did you get roped into a snack bag? Where, like, come on, come on, come on. You all, have to eat all the time. This? Yeah. Terrible for me. But. Speaking of touring, one of the things I always noticed about you, Scotty, was I, I, really, I really love the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and well, mm-hmm. what I understand of it anyway, which is probably like a third of it. Um, but there's one thing that always stands out in that book. There's like a principle that divides people and they use the example of a, a dripping faucet and that there are some people who cannot rest. And cannot be okay with the things going on until they fix this faucet, right until uh-huh. uh, like they can't rest until, and then there's another type of person who will just get accustomed to the leak and and move on with their life and that's this is a variation between two people. I've noticed something similar in touring with what people do on the first day of their bunk. <laughs> dictates kind of <laughs> kind of like the person they are like as a whole, you know, it's like a giant reflection and Scotty, you'll walk in to a bus first day, string up some lights, put a fan in, get like a little workstation set up a little, uh, <laughs> um, you know, like it's just very clean, very organized and put together. Even I think you'd sometimes get your own sheets and pillows and then there are others who, like, you know, toss a backpack in there and just basically wallow in their own filth for, like, a month. Um, me. That's me. Nah, you know, I was thinking about it. I think, Ian, you and I both are a little bit in the middle, I would say. Because even though you spend a lot of time in there, an unusual amount of time in there, it uh, never stunk, <laughs> you know? It never was stinky. No, 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 no. You never not go like, over to that. Yeah, like, across the way from you. You know, there was shit pouring out of it and it just like a general musk, you know, that like, <laughs> like, what is even happening in there? So what what is it about like you as a person like uh, that that you need to set up this station and get comfortable and and need that kind of order to touring in order to in order to be happy? Like, is that something that you found you need when you when you hit the road?
4: yeah it was it's always been like that though you know and i think maybe it stems back to all the time and months and months and months spent in you know a van where you you kind of deck the van out to to be to be comfortable you know and to be to be a home away from home and when when we started touring in buses and we used to have fun like on the trio bus we said you were on when we had the Halloween decorations that one. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we'd always, we'd, you know, you'd make that late night stop somewhere and you'd, you'd go in and you usually had a few cocktails in you and, and you'd spend a bunch of money at Walmart on on stupid crap to decorate your bunk <laughs> and <laughs> it just stuck. I love doing, <laughs> I yeah, doing yeah. it. I love doing it. And you, do you think
1: that like my theory after all the touring you've done and stuff, do you think my theory is, is somewhat true that? The way someone sets it up can kind of be like a marker of their personality on a bigger level. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So judge, judge Ian and I, <laughs> you guys are both clean. We're, pretty, we're not so bad, right? Yeah,
3: I think you could be clean though and not be that guy. I wouldn't say I. I have a, a great example of of Scotty with me and little Alex got on the bus first day and we're sitting there late at night. No one's up. And we're in the front lounge, and all these bottles are banging into each other. And we, me and him are laughing, and we're literally having a conversation, talking about how there's two different people: the people that will get up and sort something out, and the people that would just learn to deal with whatever the problem is. Right, yeah. And we were laughing every time these bottles were smashing together. We're just laughing every time and not moving. And Scotty walks in, literally ten seconds of his walk. He's like how the fuck are you sitting here listening to this <laughs> yeah, yeah. and reorganized all the bowls instantly, which was hilarious to us. But That's the kind of person Scotty is. Yeah. And the difference between someone like myself where I can just, I can literally learn to live with anything, <laughs> noise, whatever it is, I'll just deal with it. It's true. And I feel like you're the, the kind of people I would put you in there, Benny, that you're just like I cannot live with this. Oh yeah,
1: there's I have no... to
3: make this right. Yeah, yeah, Betty,
4: you're 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 a super organized guy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh no, there's no chance I'd let those bottles clang around. Yeah, yeah. No, it'd drive me fucking crazy.
4: <laughs>
3: they were clanging and we were laughing.
1: <laughs> oh, that's fucking funny, man. I love that shit. But yeah, like it's so funny because I always remember with you as far as being like an incredibly adaptive, I I think I envied you both, you know, because like. In a way, I always wished, I'm like, fuck, like I wish I was as organized as Scotty. Like, look at his bunk. That must be great to just live in there for a month, but there's no way I'm buying a mini fan, you know? Like, I'm just not (laughs) doing it. But then you, Ian, I always remember airplanes with you. And you were always like, I almost like didn't believe you at first when you were like, yeah, I don't give a fuck. And I'm like, how does this guy who's like nearly six foot five, you know what I mean? Like doesn't drink is not going to get on this plane and get hammered or anything. How is he actually okay with a middle seat going to Australia or something? Like, like this isn't possible that he's okay. He's faking. it. And then <laughs> like got no after, choice. Yeah, and then after like you know months and months of knowing him, I'm like, wow,
0: he really doesn't
1: care. How you can't care? You can't care. How do you or let it go? These... How do you let that? You're wear? like a magical creature that way, though. Yeah.
3: No, but you—you you really you drive are. yourself crazy because I'm not—I'm not, I'm not that kind of guy like Scotty, where he'll reorganize the whole—he'll reorganize the whole plane. <laughs> this, you have these drinks, you can do this. You sit there. You don't. You two shouldn't sit next to each other. I'm just like, this is my seat. I gotta be on this for 22 hours. Let's just let's just roll with it and have a laugh. I
1: mean, I envy you. Get some M and Yeah, but that's why you gotta have the snack
3: bag. If if I'm hungry, if I'm hungry, then it's a whole nother. Nah, I can't do
1: it. Uh, Oh, wait, Scotty, we missed something. We did this mystery friend segment with the acid story, and you never guessed your friend. So, who do you think told me this incorrect story about doing acid at Jed Babbitt's house?
4: (laughs) John Babbitt? No,
1: I, how the fuck would I get in touch with John Bateman Scotty? No,
4: I have no idea. <laughs> uh, oh wait, 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 Danny Andriano. Yes. All right. You, oh my god!
1: <laughs> oh my god! Now I'm reading it back, and I realize I fucked it up oh did you (laughs) yeah this is it in quotes he said once when i was like 17 or so i was doing acid at a friend named jed babbitt's house Uh, oh that's right danny was there so danny was doing acid at jed babbitt's house and told me this story oh okay this is my fault altogether i'm sorry
4: (laughs) did i say that right that's funny that that story came up
1: so, Scotty, now you told me a story earlier today that kind of fascinated me and leads me into, you know, what you're doing these days. Um, can you tell me a little about the, you know, the amphitheater you work at and the um, <laughs> what happened post 9-11 and how it came to be? Because that was pretty fascinating.
4: <laughs> and so I, I'm a production manager for a, a venue... In Chicago, uh, and it's on a little plot of land called Northerly Island, which at one point was Migs Field, which was a tiny privately run airport on the south side of Chicago, like literally just outside the city limits. It's right across some um, Soldier Field. Okay. So, it's still city limits, just out of the downtown, you know, skyscraper area. Um, but uh, yeah, so after nine eleven happened, um, every you know every mayor in the country was so paranoid about their city being attacked that uh, this little runway seemed like a a target. So in the cover of night, um, Mayor Daly, who was the mayor at the time, had uh, some guys go out there with large (laughs) machinery and just carve giant X's into the runway. So it was... (laughs) (laughs) it's not wasn't usable anymore so unlandable unlandable so now it's been turned into a park Uh, it's a city it's a city park it's owned by the city but uh every summer now we build a we build a stage out there and uh it's a it's a stageco stage and it's big steel structure and it goes up every year and and uh we put up grandstands and all that every year and uh, it's it's a beautiful spot because on on one side on the east side of the venue, so if you're on stage, if you're on stage looking to your left, it's it's thirteenth Street Beach and and Lake Michigan. And then on the stage right side is Soldier Field and there's marina in between Soldier okay. Field and the island. And then behind the stage, kinda of like the backdrop of the stage is is the skyline. So it's a it's a beautiful spot.
1: Hmm. Uh, like so what was what was it like for you making that transfer to these? Because you work all over the Midwest and these different places. Um, yeah, you know w- when you're going from the Fireside Bowl and the punk scene and Chicago <laughs> shows, and then within you know the same lifetime, you're you're producing like stadium events and stuff. Um, like as far as the music is concerned, and like the consumers, like you know, uh, connection to the music. What do you think at this point it takes for one of these like big amphitheater stadium shows to actually like connect with people the same way like a club show could do, or is it even possible?
4: Um, I think that, I think the people are looking for, for something different, a different kind of connection. I think mm-hmm. when, when you, when you're at like a stadium event like that, I mean, no one, these days no one watches the, the actual stage or looking at the, the massive video walls or they're staring at their phone because they're, they're videotaping it so they can (laughs) post it somewhere. But I, I think, you know, the, that punk rock energy that will never, it can't happen in that, in that environment. Like the bands don't put it off.
1: Right. Right.
4: (laughs) You know what I mean? And the, and the,
3: have you ever seen Coldplay? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. Pull it off.
4: (laughs) (laughs) They do a pretty good job of it.
1: (laughs) So who do you, yeah, who like out out of all the bands you've seen uh, through these years, like who do you think did the best job of uh, creating a really, really great, like large scale show? And like what were kind of some of the tricks that that maybe made it happen like that?
4: Uh, U2 is definitely um, the, the best at it. Oh really? You know, at at the stadium shows. I I think, in my personal opinion. What makes them um, the best at it? They just always have something just beyond creative as far as like a stage design and mm. and, and I mean they're all just so good at what they do and the music's I I've always loved U two, like since I was in high school. Like yeah. I've always been a U two fan.
3: Um I would say they wrote the book, wouldn't you? On, on, on like the, that kind of show. Yeah. What there, about Rush? Modern day, Rush? No, no, like modern day, like oh, a Rush modern day, like stadium show. Yeah. If you're looking at who
4: set the bar, you too, or every record. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, and for, and then the way they present, the way they present it's just, it's, I mean, no one else can afford it to do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's so expensive, like what they, what they do. But then you got, you um, you know, Pearl Jam's, like Pearl Jam's, a great example because I did not like Pearl Jam at all when I was younger. When they right. came out, yeah. I just thought that was crap. <laughs> um, but now I, I love them. Like I think they're, I think they're great. I like their, I like all their albums, even even the stuff that I thought was crap when I was younger. Okay. Um, but that that touches on like another, and I actually heard you. Uh, I was listening to the Maddie um, and Dave Hawes. Uh, show you did right and that t- kind of touches on that subject of when you're punk rock you know you can't like certain things
1: <laughs> yeah right you know
4: what i mean probably, but, um, pearl jam
1: is off limits
4: yeah i think so but yeah now, i had like
1: yeah. a 10-year break on pearl jam from like 14 to 24 and then i was like yeah. okay i can like them again
4: and they're great and yeah. they 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 deliver that kind of energy right you know in it in, in the same way but What's the like? What's
1: the largest production that that ever showed up? Like U two. What What is it like? How many trucks? Like how many people? Is it just like a village?
4: Yeah. So that the U two show when they did the I don't know if you've ever seen pictures. It was the 360 tour. They yeah, did it. Right. They did two world tours of it. They They split them up because um, like there was a back injury or something like that. Um, but they had that claw. You know? Right, yeah. And that thing was like, I mean that show I want to say it was over I think it was over fifty steel trucks. Holy shit. And and then like thirty or forty production trucks. Oh my god. It was just mental, you know, it's just so big. And then the way they and then it was plopped in the middle of a field. And they had to buy every, every stadium they went to, they had to buy all that grass because it was never coming back. Get the fuck out of here. The weight of that thing. So, yeah, I mean, that, that show is just incredible.
1: What's that cost you? Like buying. (laughs) Yeah. What's it like? I show up to Soldier Field. I'm like, I want to fuck up the grass tonight. How much is it going to cost me?
4: Like, I mean, it, it would have to be. Half a million, three quarters of a million, wouldn't you think?
1: Yeah, because it's probably the highest quality grass. <laughs> like you're going we'll to so would we'll take two. Yeah, you buy the beautiful sod farm. That's insane how many trucks it is and stuff. That's wild. And how many, yeah. how many people do you think are part of the? Well, you probably know, like how many people are part of that production? Hundreds. Yeah, it's like a. So this really is like, you know, now that you're on this side of the business, and we were dealing with, you know, COVID, I, you know, I even talked to a friend the other day where, I, you know, I was realizing, you know, I think at first when we first started the pandemic, I was sort of in the mindset that people who were saying that art and music and things like this are vital, you know, vital things to society, I, I think I brushed it off a little. Cause in a way I was like, this is not life or death. Like, like it doesn't matter. But then like, as the time went on and I could see really like what I was missing, um, what uh, it provides for other people. Like, do you think that uh, the entire industry, not just from a creative and consumer end, but also from like the business end, like a band like you two literally employing just like, hundreds of people and all these production companies and people like you who rely on them to come there. Like, um, like, do you think these businesses should have been considered more vital from the start and more subsidized as we went through this?
4: Absolutely. I think the U S probably did the least, um, in, in terms of like, you know, who we consider, you know, our, our, our friends and, and where these other bands are coming from. Like, UK and, and European countries set up much larger grants for people that were, uh, you know, in the arts and, and trying to, you know, keep them on some sort of livable, livable wage. And, you know, it's our unemployment has gone up in this country, but it's still not the same, but it, it, it took the bands themselves doing it. Mm. You know, we're a lot of, you see a lot of bands now that were supposed to tour last year, um, where they, you know, they came out with a, a special hoodie, you know, right, that yeah. you can buy, and all the money for the hoodie goes towards their their crew. Even like, you know, like friends of ours, like Rise Against, sure. know, yeah. stuff like that. But um, and then, you know, I've seen other bands like Foo Fighters. They have they're so they're such a poster driven band, mm. you know, like everybody collects Foo Fighters posters, and so <laughs> right, right. they had they had a different poster made for their whole uh, their whole tour that was canceled, but instead of those posters just getting scrapped, they, they auctioned them off. And like, I've, I have a friend that actually made the one from Minneapolis and he put it up on his site and everything. And so the and Foo Fighters were advertising it. So it just, instead of the government helping, uh, or, or, or making, making people more aware of it. It just took, it just took the artists to do it, you know?
1: Yeah. And, and, or,
4: or things like crew nation and and things like that.
1: Right. Yeah. It's so crazy, man. That just, it's not considered, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's even something as simple as like just getting together for band practice, human interaction, you know, it's just like, it it pays so much dividends. It's really, it's really wild, man. Um, so what what do you think, uh, you know, in your expertise now, like, what do you think this is all going to look like moving forward? Like, um, are we looking at just exactly what it was a couple years ago? Or what do you think are going to be like the permanent changes to, to these industries?
4: It's hard to say, you know, like, I, I guess a lot will depend on what, what happens with, you know, the, the idea of like a vaccine passport or, or, you know, if people, you know, people still got to twist people's arm to get a vaccine. Right. But um, I think this summer will be, um, we'll start to see some stuff. I think the, the bummer is it's going to be, it's going to be the, the independent clubs and the indoor spots, you know, like a little, you know, Metro where you only got, you know, a thousand, 1100 people in there, right. but they're packed, you know, shoulder to shoulder. There's no way to socially distance that where, you know, in an arena or something, you can, you can scatter people. Yeah. Right. So I think, I think, I'm optimistic. I think the, the summer will be, you know, we'll see some outside stuff. Um, I think, you know, hopefully uh, once fall rolls around that things are a bit more controlled and you start to see some some clubs open up again. And it's going to be it's state by state, I guess. But it's funny because, you know, like certain states were pushing for everything to open and to have shows, but you, you we all know you can't do a you can't do a tour in Texas. You you can play a lot of shows in Texas, <laughs> yeah, right. but you can't you can't do a tour in Texas. Yeah, sure. So you know, and most punk bands aren't going to make much
1: money down there anyway. <laughs> 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 the old Texas punk rock market, all four yeah. of
4: you. When New York goes, what July first, hundred percent open. Yeah,
1: they're going for it. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, I mean,
4: Chicago's got the same politics as New York pretty much. So I think it won't be long. I think we're doing July 4th.
1: Yeah. Stadiums are going for it. Half capacity soon. You know, we'll, uh, yeah. yeah, Hope it works out. Right. So before I let you guys go, the two of you, I need to do something combined. Okay. And I know you might have to fight a little about it.
3: I won't fight Scotty. He's too, he's too muscly. (laughs) It's
1: true. You, he probably knows some weird, like MMA moves, you know, you just lock up your leg and you'd be fucked. He'd probably just (laughs) tickle
3: you. He'd tickle you into submission because he's so nice.
1: You're the tickle monster.
3: No, but he's, he's, he's Uh. got that beautiful body. I don't know. I just can't (laughs) take that on. All
1: right. Before this gets too overtly sexual, I'd like the two of you to please rank The three best Fugazi albums
3: in history. Oh, boy. Oh, can I just, can I say one thing before? Yes. That one of my favorite memories all time, when I think of Scotty, is (laughs) when we first were working together, we would have Fugazi Fridays. Fugazi Fridays. Every every Friday, we would only listen to Fugazi every Friday. I don't remember that. And it's one of my, when I think Scotty, if someone's like, what kind of a guy is Scotty? I'm like. He's a beautiful man, beautiful body, Fugazi <laughs> Friday.
1: I think uh, Ian just wrote your uh, epitaph, Scotty. <laughs> beautiful man, beautiful body, Fugazi Fridays. I've probably listened
3: to Fugazi more with Scotty than any other person. We've listened to every record, every second of every record together, 100%. And then
1: you are the two perfect people to answer this question. So I not only want the top 3, I'd like them in order please.
4: Oh god, don't make us pick. I know I know my top 1 for sure is in on the Killtaker.
3: Oh no. Yeah, not is, no? that, is in on See, a, I, is that
1: even in your top 3?
3: I would go I like the later records more than like ah, oh, end hits would be my favorite, I think. And I know it's not like many people's but I, like I it, would say, uh, I just think it sounds better, but I don't know. Don't make us pick. It's like saying, pick your favorite kids, I think.
1: Yeah. If I had
3: kids, which is super I don't know. easy. <laughs> is it?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some, no. some kids are assholes, you know, and some kids aren't. Some Fugazi <laughs> records are better than other ones. What is this? Ooh. Come on, give me a top three. Top three. Oh,
3: God. Well no I can't I can't we listen to every the every second of every record I can tell you I can speak for both of us that we love every second. There's not I think there's not many bands that you could say that about.
1: Man. You know what I mean? I really needed it's one true. of you guys to be more controversial, you know?
4: I'm oh, definitely man. sticking with In A Kill Taker for number one. I would probably say study a diet mm. number two. Ooh, yeah. And I like I like End Hits, too. But I really like Red Medicine. Oh, yeah. Oh, Red Medicine's got... You can't can't pick three, then. (laughs) So those would be right smack dab in the middle of
3: those three. (laughs) Well, what if I pick one, End Hits, you pick one, Mm. and then we'll pick one together, Red Medicine.
4: There
1: you go. Top three. So we got End Hits, In On the Kill Taker, Red Medicine.
3: Oh, that's such a tough...
1: I love that you guys are leaving out 13 songs. And I love that you're leaving out the argument cuz I'd assume those are probably the two most picked albums. I'll
3: football. tell you the you argument think the
4: argument's the most picked. I think it's arg-
3: yeah. I hated I I hated it. When I first heard it, I I'll tell you right now I was like, "What the fuck is this?" And then I was supposed to see them and it got canceled in London. And by the time the show was rescheduled, I was like, "This is the best record I've ever heard in my life." I I completely didn't get it at the beginning. Yeah and i feel like there's a lot of records like that where you like what well, that goes into a whole nother thing sure. of instant music that's like all out now do you know what i mean i just don't think there's much mu- music coming out like that now where you're like i'm going to have to sit on this for a couple of months yeah, and like right. hear it at the right time
4: but yeah that record oh
3: cuz that's the energy,
4: that's the live energy you want to capture
1: mm. yeah that's true that's untouchable
3: did you ever see Fugazi in Chicago back in the day? Sure. Oh, you just say sure yeah. like it's like no big <laughs> deal. Scoop a
4: chocolate, scoop <laughs> vanilla.
2: No, don't waste
4: uh-huh. my time. <laughs> we got, there was um, one show. It was at an old, uh, it was an abandoned roller rink called Rainbow Roller Rink. And um, they played there. And here, this will just be another good guy story. So they played there. We were all broke and a handful of us volunteered to work the show, right? So we were just kind of just doing whatever you need to do. It wasn't like security or anything like that. But, um, the guy that put on the show, do you guys, have you guys ever seen that there's a split seven inch and it's jawbreaker or sorry, Jawbox and tar. And they each have a song called static, but on the seven inch, they cover each other's song static. Hmm, Okay. So there's a man on that cover. His name's Bernie. And he's the one that put on the show in Chicago. And I guess he was just a personal friend. And uh, so we all volunteered to work the show so we could go see it. It was Fugazi in the makeup.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And this is a roller rink. And uh, Could you roller skate no. the, at the show? <laughs> oh, no. I thought you were asking if I could roller skate. I'm shocked before. that you don't have
3: roller <laughs> Yeah, we know you can roller skate. You can do everything. <laughs> no. But just
4: at the show, that would have been cool. That would have been cool. But months later, I was at Metro, and we were playing a late show. And Bernie was there for the early show. And I I didn't know this man at all. Like Brian knew him. That's how I got hooked up to work the the Fugazi show. So he sees me, and he, he recognizes me, and he reaches into his pocket. And I can't remember how much he pulled out. It was like 20, 30 bucks. And he hands it to me. And he said, the guys from the band wanted me to find everybody that volunteered for that Fugazi show somehow and just give them some cash. <laughs> so I was like, wow. All right. <laughs> so you got paid to go to the show. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
3: how was the show though? Amazing. They were great. Oh.
1: The last thing I, I like to ask people right now is like, you know, uh, you know, some people are struggling day to day. What's the kind of stuff? That you're using on a day to day basis to kind of stay sane, and uh, are there any music or books or podcasts that you could recommend to the people?
4: I, I take a lot of walks. Nice. <laughs> right now, so we moved when we when we moved uh, back from Manchester. Um, we we bought a house, but we're way out in the sticks now. We're like way out of the city. Okay. So um, there's lots of walking paths. So yeah, I, I take long long walks a lot um, to stay sane podcasts. I'm into like, I listen to a lot of like conspiracy theory podcasts because I just, I'm, I'm fascinated by how people get sucked into things. Like when I read books, I don't really read fiction very often. Mm-hmm. I like nonfiction and I like it about people that are just kind of, that get into weird shit. <laughs> That's cool. Like I, I love, I love people that for some reason, just like, man, and during the pandemic, this whole, the, the QAnon thing. Right. Has been so magnificent to, to read about and to listen to podcasts about because that shit is just bananas. Yeah. No, it's insane. So, so bananas. But, um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. We, we kind of have a nice routine. Beck's still working. So spend some time with the dog and go for walks and, we watch, you know, watch something after dinner, and just try and keep a head up straight. Love it. All right, yeah. Scotty.
1: Well, thanks for uh, doing this with me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having. That was it. Was fun. I man. Appreciate that. I'm still here. Yo, I love you. Thanks for doing this. Lot yeah, I love. love you guys, man. I love I miss you guys. You guys a Lot ton. Love,
3: Lot Lot of love, of love, love.
1: That was fun. Brad. Man, did you ever <laughs> see, uh like, Smashing Pumpkins in a weird little, oh my gosh. little venue? No, I did not ever
2: see Smashing Pumpkins. But, you know, I, w- I was wondering, like, if I ever... W- when was Scotty there, like, at Fireside working there, do you think?
1: I think, like, like mid to late 90s. Because,
2: like, I, d- I was going to bring it up, but there was enough people talking, and I couldn't <laughs> remember. But, um yeah, I mean, I played Fireside... 96, 97, 98. Ah. Three years running. 96 is with the Souls. Uh-huh. 97 was with, we were on tour with 22 Jacks. Oh, nice. And actually, I think Lunichicks played that night too. Cool. And then, a 98, I don't remember. I think it was just an off night, blown through.
1: What a great venue. I mean, it's like one of the... So cool. So yeah, cool. Like, Like, it's hard to describe. I mean... For people from New Jersey, we got a little bit of a taste with the original Asbury Lanes, Um, you know, not the one we have now, uh, which, you know, the locals hate. I don't mind. But, like, places like that just, I mean, fuck. Not only do they not exist anymore, but as per this conversation we just had, like, fuck, how hard is it going to be for places like this? Yeah, to survive now, or or the ones that did survive. It's really like <laughs> something this conversation did to me, and like you know, going into it is like I I don't know, I I don't know if I've been naive to it this whole time or something, but I I really am like stunned at this point at the uh, the lack of commitment to the arts. It just right. feels so crazy now that I see. <sighs> How much money went to so many different places, the people who needed it, and just these like real serious gear functions of how people survive and how people find joy and how people make their livings and how just that wasn't considered vital. It's just such a it's another another stain among many stains of this whole thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But uh it, it made me laugh because I, you know. It always makes me think of Van Halen and their Brown M&M story, you know? <laughs> how, like, they just, like, snuck that into the middle of the contract to make sure that yeah. people were reading their technical specs. And yeah, when I hear about you 2 showing up with, like, fuck, like, a hundred trucks, you know? Like, how many buses? Like, that is, like, an industry. It's, like, its own, it's its own industry, you know? Like, oh,
2: yeah. No, it's a small town there youtube's I mean, definitely a small industry, yeah, for real, I'm sure I hung out with um youtube's uh like engineer, like Bono's like vocal engineer um one time, and he told me this hilarious story about um i guess the edge has this huge pedal board
1: <laughs> i'd imagine, yeah,
2: yeah, as you would think, but <laughs> and i don't even know how this as a technical guy i don't know how this is possible, but There's an exact replica of it just off stage and his guitar tech stands over it for the whole show so that if Edge cannot, you know, because he changes stuff so often. Yeah. If he can't make it back to the pedal board, like the tech will change, make the change for him. But I guess he's like always fucking with him. Like he'll lift his foot like over a pedal, like right before the part and then like not stomp it. Just to like fuck with his tech. It's just like like knowing like th- how massive their show is and yeah, how right. kind of important. And I mean, I like you too, but like let's face it, a lot of the edge of sound comes from those fucking pedals.
1: <laughs> sure,
2: you know I, what I mean. And like, yeah, yeah. it's just well, hilarious yeah. that that's what he would choose to fuck around with, like the thing that might actually really make a difference to his sound. But
1: yeah, I mean, so are you? Are you one of those like? From a drummer's perspective, right? I always watch, I watched that one, I forget the documentary, but the one that was like uh, Jimmy Page, yeah. Jack White, and the that's edge, Yeah, that's where a like, good ex- Jimmy Page and Jack White are basically just destroying him edge. out the whole yeah. fucking time. Just like,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> you're not a guitar player. Like, we are. Enjoy but your he, toys. He couldn't whatever. really keep up with them, dude. Like, I mean, I mean but that's was, where, but, but, do we consider like I've seen people do amazing stuff with that technology, and to say that part of it is not a skill?
2: No, no, it's like, a, like it's a actual, very different yeah, the
1: manipulation of these things.
2: Yeah, it kind of wasn't fair. I even I realized I that when I, didn't I was think watching it. was it. Fair, yeah, like yeah.
1: and and then you know from a drummer's perspective, when I'm like writing songs from a rhythmic perspective. Nine times out of ten, I'd rather you motherfuckers play a beautiful note, let it hang over four bars with some fucking pedals on it, instead of noodling (laughs) all over this beautiful fucking part. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's funny you bring that up because I, as I was watching that, I remember thinking like, yeah, this is not really fair. This would be like me trying to sit in with a couple of like, you know, like classical guitar players or like jazz guy, like jazz guitar. Jazz players play these chords that I don't even know what they are. Like right. I don't even yeah. I wouldn't even know how to play them, and that's like, kind yeah. of what was happening there. Was exactly. Like, these are two blues-based dudes, like right, and like he just yeah he was lost, but it's like it was good though. It's a good um I I enjoyed that little what was that like Netflix or something?
1: Yeah, I forget what it was. It was really interesting though. Yeah, it's like me sitting in a room with like Terry Bosio, <laughs> and being like, hey, you like uh. You dig like the new ISIS record. You know? You want to get stone to just play super slow with me, Terry? Yeah, yeah just I don't know. Different vibe. Yeah, and yeah. and I mean, as a guitar player, like who else was doing like like who who was doing in mainstream what the edge was doing? Like Robert Smith, like the cure kind of stuff? Like like, was oh, there not any really any Ed, precedent he inv- for it. Beforehand? No, he kind of really did invent. Yeah. Um, he was
2: he was not even a guitar. I mean, I keep, he was he is. I mean, his thing is more like almost. I hate to use this word; it's so overused, but it's more like sound design almost yeah. than than guitar playing. And um, and yeah, I I read a thing once where who was was it Lenoir or whoever the producer they used to use a lot was talking about their whole thing was to make a vibe, to make like, like they would just jam on things for hours until they kind of, until everybody was playing something that just created like this incredible ambience, and then they would write a song around it. Mm. And it really makes sense because, yeah, it's not, their stuff doesn't sound, whether you love them or hate them, like there's not really anybody that gets that, that sound or that, that real, that like kind of presence, that vibe as, as you two does.
1: Totally. And understood that thing about, you know, about the show. You yeah. know, that's like, uh, you know, I've had that conversation with a lot of people over the years. Like what, once you get to a certain size, once you start charging certain amount for tickets, what is your responsibility as far as putting on a show is concerned? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, like seriously, like if you're, yeah, yeah getting to like a stadium level and you're charging $50 for your show and just four bozos get up there in their jeans and <laughs> rip of the hour and a half of songs. Like, I know it's cool and it'll sound good, but are they doing like the whole thing at disservice? Like once you get to that right. point, do you have a responsibility to like give a little bit of a show?
2: Oh yeah. They, They try to bring the show. I I saw them play the Zoo TV tour with Primus opening. And, you know, this was back when I was full on, like, unapologetic punk rocker. Right. So... I thought that the stage overwhelmed them, you know, it was really, they had a lot going on on that stage, Mm. but in the middle of the show, they came out and did the, and this was one of the first times I had seen this. Everybody does it now, but where they came out and did kind of an acoustic set in the middle of the audience. And that was mesmerizing. I think Lou Reed came and like did a song with them. Um, And that was when I was like, Oh my God. Like I was, that was really engaging. And um, I talked to somebody else who was like a fan of you two who said that that tour kind of like that it was a little overblown and they realized <laughs> afterwards that maybe the stage had overwhelmed them. And they and I think they figured out after that how to how to bring it closer to the audience.
1: I mean, um, I think crazy. it's rad. Maybe it's because my first big show ever was seeing Rush. You know, <laughs> yeah. so I'm into the lights. I'm into the. Oh, you know, yeah. The I think you should bring quality. a show. You should bring a show for sure, man. Yeah. For something like that. You know, and even Gaslight ran into it at a certain point. Like we wanted to be that band. Like, all right, yeah. you're coming. You're coming for these fucking songs. Let's, you know, instead of a stage show, we're going to play 28 songs straight with no encore. You know, like, that's how right. we're going to do it instead. But right. we even got to a point, you're watching videos of it, and you're like, I don't know, it looks fucking empty up there. You know? <laughs> like, there's only five of us, and this stage is huge. Like, we kind of look like assholes, you know? like <laughs> Should have got a gospel choir, dude. <laughs> I know, something. Something. I got to play to with an orchestra once on the uh, wow, on a late really? night show. That was kind of cool. I was terrified. I was like, wow, these people are actually really counting. <laughs> and I'm just and I'm just bobbing my head in time. Uh, I'm like they're gonna figure me out. But anyway, uh, I know we we quickly mentioned it in the uh, interview. Scotty is a fantastic photographer. Um, posts a lot of cool shit about uh you know the work he's doing now and some of the old tours. He's got a million great Gaslight photos. Actually, most of the ones that uh, appear, um. Most of the ones that appear in the Gaslight Instagram these days are Scotties. Uh mm. So everyone should check out um, his Instagram. He's just at Scotty Anna. And then, uh, of course, check out the Perkins. Perkins 28. He's on there, too. One of the finest people I know. A couple of the finest people I know. Yeah, you can tell. I yeah. think I could tell that you are uh, fond of those guys. I am. I Yeah, I just want to keep talking to him. So <laughs> thanks for... Uh, coming on to the program and listening and uh we'll see thanks you all next for week.
2: listening leave us a review on the apple podcasts used to mm. be called itunes you can Sexual leave a benny ease. review or whatever you're comfortable with
1: <laughs> what's a benny review brad
2: oh when i listen to going off track i go i go i go i i i <laughs>
1: Wow. And we're out.
3: (laughs) Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ